Coming up on this week's show, GameStop are opening retro gaming cafes. Connecting your modern console to a retro TV. And the inside story on one of the longest running game series, we talk to Vic Lucas from Electric Playground. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 191, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And he's back. The handsomeness is back on the show. How long have I been away? About, what, two weeks? Two weeks. Been Jesus. in sunny Spain, you've been? Yeah, I went to Spain. I ditched the show to go spend time with the wife, recharge the batteries. You've got a bit of colour in your cheeks, though. Better than that usual, like, metal nightclub glow that you normally have, so. <laughs> what, that, that pale kind of, like, <laughs> vampiric glow I usually have? <laughs> yeah, I was like, why have you got white makeup on your face, Joe? I was like, I'm not, it's my natural no, it's glow. it's just me. <laughs> nice to have you back, though, Joe. Thank you, thanks for having now, me. Now, it's good to have full crew on this week, so we've got some amazing stories to talk about. And also, we're going to be covering a show that a lot of our audience will probably only know from online if you live in Europe or... Um, the UK, but it was a massive show back in the day on television in Canada, in America, in Australia as well. And this is actually one of the longest running video games, kind of, you know, sources, I want to say, because it was not only a television show, now it's a YouTube channel. It started as a website in 1995. You're talking like the earliest days of the web, mm. when, you know, we used to make our websites in like, a, you could do it in notepad in half an hour back then, couldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> and this is um, Victor Lucas, and he's basically from you probably know it as EP Daily now, yeah. but it was the Electric Playground. And like Dan says, this, this is older, years older than us. You know, he's been interviewing people since properly back in the days. Yeah. And he also kind of, he's split out. So he's he's originally been there when it was local TV, when it was also kind of national stuff. He was being syndicated on other channels, but now he's got a YouTube channel. He's got a website, but you know, he's doing this long before even YouTube was a glint in... Google's eye. Yeah, we well, I mean, it's, you know, a decade before YouTube was conceived. Yeah, you're talking 1995. I mean, I didn't get on the web, I don't think, until 96 was probably the first time I went on the web. And, you know, back then there was like just a handful of websites that you look at. So it was really early to the game. And the fact that it's been going for 25 years, I mean, you'll hear when we do talk to Vic that, you know, he went to the first E3. And at the time, it was like, you know, the launch of the, the Sega Saturn. Yeah. The next day, you know, he was talking to the Tremils about the Atari Jaguar VR unit that, of course, famously never came out. And, you know, it was such an exciting era in video games when he started documenting this. That kind of shift from 16-bit into, like, the mm. PlayStation, the N64 that would come after, then the launch of the PS2. So yeah. he's been there, you know, throughout some of the most exciting times in video games history. And really interesting guy as well. So Vic Lucas, the man behind Electric Playground, will be coming up on the Retro Out podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And we've got some great stories to talk about this week too. Before we do get into that, though, let's give a shout to some of our favourite people in the world. This week's VIPs, who've made their place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, you might be listening thinking, that sounds pretty cool. How do I get in the Hall of Fame? Well, the way to get in the Hall of Fame is to support the show, and you can do that by going to theretrohour.com, clicking on supporters, and basically it's a PayPal donation, any amount, any currency, we don't mind, and if you put that in, all of the money goes back into the running of the show. And let's just bring it out every single Friday for you. And for making a donation of any amount, big or small, we really appreciate it. We will roll out the red carpet for you in a future episode of the podcast by giving you a little shout. Like this week... Stephen Fegley. Ryan Brooks. Andrew Ellis. And Jerome Becker. Who all made donations into the running of the podcast. And if you'd like to do the same, all the details at theretrohour.com or you can do it direct from your PayPal app. It is paypal at theretrohour.com. 
Now, before we chat to Vic about Electric Playground, that incredible show that's been documenting video game history for almost 25 years, speaking of going retro, you know, we've been hearing all these stories about GameStop. Now, we haven't got GameStop here in the UK, but, you know, we, we've talked in the past that we've been to GameStop in Ireland before. Ireland, yeah, they're, they're all over Europe as well, and essentially we have Game. Yeah, they're the biggest one in America. You know, yeah, they're, to... they're really the, the main kind of one in America, aren't they? Yeah, but they haven't been having a good time of it recently. In 2018, they lost $500 million. That's a lot of money. For, for anyone to lose. Bro, that's a lot of money for anyone to lose. But I can't imagine kind of like some of these retail, like, you know, high street shops kind of having that kind of money yeah. these days. So yeah. it's a hell of a lot of money to lose. That's a, that's a lot of games to sell, isn't it, to that's make $500 million. But, I mean, we did mention this probably about six months ago now mm. in one of our news stories, that they were making plans to kind of turn these game stops into gaming centres where people could come in and it kind of be like back in the day. We remember going to like Electronics Boutique or Game Station on a Saturday yeah. afternoon and they'd have all the consoles set up and all yeah. the kids would go in there and play it. They kind of want to go back to roots. Now, we covered that a few months ago and it turns out they've actually released a video of what their new stores could look like. Now, this is a test store in Oklahoma and a video has been uploaded to Facebook showing this restructuring of GameStop and their plan for the future of the company. Now, I will link the video in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Essentially, they, you know, like we said then, they want to turn these into places where they're going to hold gaming tournaments. Yeah. People can come in there on a Saturday afternoon. They're going to have tabletop gaming in there too. I was literally about to say tabletop gaming and kind of like your magic of the gathering and stuff like that. I think that's something they should try and kind of plug into, but... It looks like they are. Yeah, I mean, you look everywhere, these kind of board game cafes. And yeah. They're popping up everywhere. They're, they're doing popular really well. uh, where we are in Nottingham. So. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting for us is they've also got quite a substantial retro gaming section in here too. Yeah. Now, they've got these couches set up, and they've got systems like the N64, the GameCube, the PlayStation, original Xbox set up yeah. as well, plugged into these big, chunky, late-generation CRT TVs. I was just wondering whether they were real or if they're kind of like the fake CRTs you used to get in <laughs> Ikea, you know, in the, uh, <laughs> in the like, kind of, like, demonstration, like, bedrooms and stuff. Just pick, pick it up and throw it at your brother's yeah, head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm looking at them now, and I'm like, I wonder if they're real, because of, for that to look kind of professional, they're going to have to kind of dig out a lot of, lot of old kind of product. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it looks pretty good from the video. Looking at, looking at this video, though, it, it's like, I think it's crap, to be honest. Like, okay. What they've done is... <laughs> Let me hear this. Don't mince your words, <laughs> What they've done is they've destroyed game stores, independent game stores, by putting stuff like vouchers out there, removing sofas, removing lots of displays. I remember they used to have a lot of the old PlayStation releases there. They'd turn the machine off because they didn't want kids to come in and play that. You know, yeah. they, they've actively discouraged people from coming into mm. their shop mm. and now they've lost a load of money they're like oh please come in and play our games look we've got crts in chairs that's exactly so right, i really yeah. don't care <laughs> like, I mean, yeah it's, it's been the same over here game essentially went from you know like, like we said you know back in the 90s i remember every saturday we'd go in there and we'd play these games but it kind of became more of a we want you in and out as quickly as possible yeah buy the game get out well a friend of mine summarized it about i kid you not 15 years ago yeah we used to have in Nottingham game and game station. And he summarised it 15 years ago. He says he doesn't like going into game because he doesn't like buying a game from a toff in a suit because of they ha- they wore suits and smart clothes and stuff like that. And he was like, that's not, that's also, not gaming for me. Also, you and remember... I see I'm where sorry. Ravi's coming from. Sorry. Yeah. I see where... You, they're trying to like be like, that's, that's not us anymore because GameStop was like that as well. It's like, that's not us. We're cool and hip 
and this is what we do. I mean, I think it's cool that they're trying to do that. It's something I would probably go to, but I, at the same time, I appreciate what you're saying. Ravi, they've kind of brought it on themselves. Yeah, you remember when we used to have the um, game in Nottingham and upstairs, yeah. they would have a whole import section and it wouldn't be that yeah. popular and it would it would be imports though and that would bring the gamers in there. They mm. would come in, go look at the import section, go down and buy something else. But then they just killed off that import section, filled it with those plastic crap redeem cards and like get in get out and toys you know? yeah 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 and I, what, what i really often hate about going to places like game is the fact you know you'd be there do you want the rewards card i know they've got to yeah. do all that stuff but then you get it off amazon you haven't got to go through all that headache about oh no i'm all right you sure you don't want to give it a try and it's like, yeah, yeah. You, know, you got five you just automatically signed up to amazon <laughs> yeah. prime <laughs> five aisles of amiibos and then if you want to get pc stuff it's like half a shelf with yep. one led keyboard on there it's rubbish. i think whenever i go into the game i go i go looking at the Wii U games on that half a shelf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to see that, that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was there two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, this is obviously something they're doing to try and yeah save the company in a way by yeah. getting people in there. Apparently they're going to be closing as many as 200 stores across the globe to yeah. pay for this. It's a lot of people's jobs. It is, yeah. yeah. But I mean, what's also, I, I think the people that work there probably will have a bit more fun now. It might not be as stuffy if they can hang around with the customers well, and play games. And, I think mm. it's all about the store manager. So mm. there's, I, I, well, I'm always on Twitter and Game Telford, if you guys are out there, I love your Twitter because yeah, yeah. every time there's a game released, your manager's in there in a Mario seat jumping about on Twitter, no. you know, <laughs> doing a little promo and he's got that kind of good community vibe and I, and I think if the managers step up, it could yeah. work. You know, and, that, but, and that kind of comes back reflecting on what I said a minute ago about like the toffs and the suits I mean if okay that's nice to hear that some of the guys are moving away from that but that's what they need to bring in that's what the big yeah. ones need to bring in they need to bring in these kind of store managers who have got that community and passion yeah. and passion yeah, yeah. I love the fact as well that in this video, there's not only, you know, there's a little T-shirts bit they're going to do in the new game stops. There's a modern gaming area where you can sit down and play Nintendo Switch and PlayStation 4. The retro gaming area. Then right at the back, they've got a snack bar. The <laughs> <laughs> can, can's a monster. <laughs> is anyone else thinking what I'm thinking, though? You sit down, you want to have a go on their PlayStation 2 or whatever. Kid before you've been on, he's been having a ba bag of Cheetos. There is Orange that. fingers yeah, on the controllers. Yeah. Or you've got to that. buy a snack before you can have that a That was play. the one I was thinking. <laughs> Revy read my mind there. You've got to buy a snack or a drink yeah. to I play. Mean, to be fair, I would anyway. You know, yeah. snack, I can't say no to snacks. I'm gonna say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, good luck, GameStop. I'm not convinced it's going to save the company. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a good shift in culture, but it seems if they're losing that much money, it's a bit too late, isn't it? And it's going to cost a lot to remodel all the shops, oh, you'd God, imagine, yeah. across the world. Well, getting rid of 200 of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you feel for the people that work in these places and, like, you know, yeah. you know the, the people that work in the sh shops who are passionate about it will do their best to make it a success, but it does kind of seem like they're going down the pan quick, doesn't it? So yeah. whether they'll be here in, like, you know, the next two or three years, we'll see, but... A step in the right direction, I think. And mm -hmm. like I said, I'd be curious to go in and give it a try. You know, I find myself in uh, more more in exchange shops yeah. uh, nowadays yeah. rather than in like actual gaming places. Yeah, you mixed, might hear me mixed feelings in the studios here today. <laughs> you might hear me unzipping something. It's just a. Uh... Nothing to nothing dodgy. I'm just unzipping my Nintendo Switch. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> we can't like, see behind the desktop. <laughs> we've got me and Ravi on one side, and we've got Dan on the other side unzipping things. <laughs> I just want to show Joe the selection of Super Nintendo games on the uh, Nintendo Switch now. Okay, on my okay. Nintendo Switch. Thank uh, yeah, you. is that yours now? Is this, is. Is this just you showing <laughs> off your Switch, or is no, it related to the reason news? I'm doing this? Is at the moment, obviously, we know that the uh, the Switch has now got Super Nintendo games, but Nintendo have just released their official SNES controllers. 
Oh, they, they, they look really nice, actually. And uh, these are wireless as well. Yeah, they uh, are. Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah Bluetooth. So you is can this all the games? That, it's only been out about two weeks. So that's the selection yeah. they've got so far. Pretty decent selection. There are some good games on there. Right? Playing Brawl Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the volume down, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm giving it back. I'm giving yeah, it Joe's back. Joe's attention yeah. just gone there for the rest of the show. But, I mean, yeah, there is a good selection on there already. But that's the thing. When you do play these games, it is so much better with the original controllers. Mm. That's what they were made for, isn't it? Mm. So well, the fact that Nintendo releases $29.99. At the moment, it's not out in Europe yet. It's just in America. Okay. Um, and I believe Japan, it might be out as well. But if you look at it, it's that kind of um, the American Palmer Violet button I was style. literally about yeah. to say it's the Palmer <laughs> Violet ones, you know. Because they did the NES ones, which could attach onto the side, didn't they? Yeah. And then these ones can't attach on the side, but they do look really comfy. Yeah, I mean, they're essentially cloning the originals, really. But apparently, you can't just use it with the emulator. You can actually use it on other games on the Switch that don't need analog sticks. I was, ju- yeah. I was just thinking that. I was, I didn't want to drop myself in it and say, oh, I wonder if they work on the other games and realise, well, it's not an analog stick. Yeah. But obviously, you can buy, like, Neo Geo Classic games and stuff, can't you? So. Yeah. $30 as well. It's yeah, that's pretty yeah. good. It's not a bad bad little controller. Um, is it just for the Switch or can it go on? Only Switch. Only Switch. Probably, yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Um, it's an official release. Isn't <laughs> now, it? if you look at the website, you scroll right down at the bottom. There's a bit of it today. I saw that and I was like, what? There's a little warning. It goes, warning, cancer and reproductive harm. What? <laughs> right at the bottom of this cancer website. Re- oh, yeah. I saw that last week because I put some um, panelling up in my office yeah. at home to kind of dampen sound when I do YouTube videos. Mm. And it said the same. There's a sticker on the back of all of them saying the same thing. I looked this up. Apparently, it's a rule in California. They've got to put that on anything that could, like, contain harmful chemicals if you eat them. Oh, wow. So, okay. long, long as you don't eat the controllers, you're, you're probably fine. Be fine. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> if you look at it, then, and you're like me, and you're like, what? Then, yeah. Just don't eat your SNES controllers. <laughs> You'll be absolutely fine. Have you tried eating one of those um, Switch games anyway? They taste disgusting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not the nicest things to lick, yeah, I must admit. Now, we do love retro consoles. We love modern consoles as well. Do you ever wish, though, you know when you're playing your modern system, do you ever think, I wish I could hook this up to a CRT TV? Every time. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Every day on the PlayStation 4. <laughs> I'm like, oof. Yeah, you, you want it in black and white. on. I want, a I want, I want this on that little 6 by 4 inch screen that we used to have in our kitchen. Now that... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you sarcastic bugger. But this is, though, this is our friends at Analog. Now, they're the guys behind the Mega SG and the Super NT that we've talked about. Oh. The reason they've done this is, I mean, it's not... They actually are releasing a new little add-on here that they say is just for their system. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work with other ones as well, but I think there are some legitimate use cases for this. So essentially what it is, it's a digital-to-analog converter. So what it allows is modern consoles to be connected to CRT TVs, but obviously their systems are kind of reinterpretations of old systems. Mm. So I can see why, if you have got one of those, I still don't think you can accurately recreate the CRT experience. Because, I mean, flat screen panels are so different, you can't get that, you know, representation of the glows of the phosphor. I I think it's... It depends how the interface works, but an example model for this being really good yeah. would be if you were building your own arcade cab using modern kind of technology and you yep. wanted that CRT in for light guns or yeah. whatever. And the question is, how does it communicate with the CRT? Would light guns work reactively that quick or something? But surely coming from analog, they're going to produce something amazing like most of their other products, you know. Well, this is $80, so uh, 64 quid they're going to sell it for in the UK as well. And essentially it's got uh, HDMI input, but then it gives you a variety of outputs including RGB, um, you've got, you know, composite, component, 
um, various different outputs, including SV, SVHS is on there as well, I think. Oh, cool. So it does give you, you know, a variety of them to hook up your modern system to an old TV. You know, they do say it'll only work with the analog systems. There are some cases I think of, like, Ravi, you've got this, um, without going too nerdy here, you've got a video card for the Amiga recently yeah, yeah. that kind of soups it up, gives it, you know, higher screen modes and all that, but it's got HDMI out. And I like using my Amiga on a CRT. So something like this would let me be able to use that, I guess. Yeah, that, that's display. what I'm hoping. Yeah, I guess so. you can only, until you get it, you try it and see what happens. So I'd like to see some videos of this coming out and what people can do. Yeah. But I'm seriously considering buying it because I wanted to build an arcade cab with light gun stuff on it. Apparently, though, we've got to do the disclaimer that apparently it only works on Analog's products. So uh, someone will have to buy okay. and try that. Buy one, right? Just, buy and you, try you, it, yeah. you can afford it, Ravi. You're minted. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking of rich kid only things, <clears throat> the Neo Geo. Oh, we've talked about that system in the past. I do wow, remember that. Wow, it's becoming uh, more and more affordable. It is. It for is. us paupers. <laughs> since, since the 90s, it's come down. Oh, I remember at school, the kids were like, oh, it's, it's what these rich Japanese kids have. They have arcade machines in the rooms. And I was like, <laughs> never thought I'd ever see one in my life. But we obviously had the, um, the Mini that came out um, yeah. about 12 months ago now. Didn't get a very good reception. You know, a Not lot of people were saying it, it wasn't a very accurate system. It's been re-released as well, hasn't it? Yeah, apparently it didn't fix a lot of the problems. Okay. That, that new edition they did, I've seen, well, according to YouTube reviews. I'm I was going to say, we well. spoke about it. And it was meant to have fixed a yeah. few issues, but not everything. Yeah, I was watching a few videos, and mm. apparently it hasn't. Mm. Um, but this is pretty cool, and hopefully this one will be improved. Neo Geo are releasing an Arcade Stick Pro. So what this is, is it's a Neo Geo Arcade Stick. It's modelled on the Neo Geo CD controller. Mm. So essentially it's an Arcade Stick. This connects up to your TV via HDMI. Yeah. So the system is inside the joystick. So it's a classic mini console in the controller. It yeah, looks like a, a, a Dreamcast um, fighting stick. You know, quite a few of those big Dreamcast ones. Came yeah, out it's, got, it's got it's got similar kind of, kind of aesthetic. Yeah, it looks kind of similar, but like like Dan says, it's based on the Neo Geo CD controller. Not the not that I ever had one of those. Yeah, not But what I think is interesting is um, obviously I'm hoping it's going to be a better build quality and better emulation. But it reminds me of those kind of plug and play controllers knock off like n64 controllers you'd get from the from the market yeah you know the year 2000 thinking oh wow this is gonna have like the latest games on it and you hook it up and it's got a janky version of donkey kong yeah for the nes on it and contra on it it kind of reminds me of that because it's it's in the controller it's the plug and play well if it is rubbish it says uh it can be used to plug into a pc yeah you can so, use it just yeah. as a fighting stick on a pc apparently yeah. so you know you don't have to use it as a console and you can connect the controllers they've already released for the Neo Geo Mini into this. Yeah. So you or, can or daisy can, chain. Or you can hook two of them up together. So you can, so so you can daisy chain more controllers yeah. into it. So, I mean, looking at it, it's a fighting stick. Yeah. And I know the Neo Geo did have a very good catalogue of fighting games, mm -hmm. a King of Fighters, stuff like that. You know, yeah, sorry. Tournaments sorry, sorry, yeah, exactly. Some really big ones on there. So I guess if you're really into those games, it is a good way of having, like, you know, if you get two of them, you and your mate, hook them up together, plug it into your telly, have that couch experience of, you know, playing these high-end fighting games yeah. from back in the day. Again, with any kind of arcade stick, it's hard to give an opinion until you feel it. Mm. You know, you got there's something about that those arcade parts that if you get it wrong... Yeah, it's the the stick as well. Um, I forget the two names for them, but the, the, the different kind of connectors. For Micro having, switch and Micro switches. switches and, yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, and then also if it's the baton or if it's that kind of like, I forget the name for the other one, but the lollipop kind of yeah, like yeah. one. So it's, it's all about, yeah, the clickiness for me. I do like a certain yeah. amount and yeah. the travel, it's got to be right. And the buttons are got to be responsive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, until you've actually, but having Neo Geo, which, you know, is always a very premium brand, mm. 
you'd assume that they're going to do it right. But then that mini wasn't all that good, <laughs> yeah. so we'll see. But they haven't released a game list yet. Apparently, it's going to have fewer games on than the. I would the imagine it would just be 20. Yeah, fight, fighting, fighting games, games, you'd imagine, wouldn't yeah. you? So. You're going to get Samurai Showdown 1 to 5. Yeah. King of Fighters 94 to 2000, <laughs> probably. It is interesting, though, that they're kind of coming out with these more obscure mini consoles now. Because they've yeah. done all the main ones, really. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, people were talking, you know. Obviously, it was a Dreamcast birthday last week. Mm. Um, and we, did, we were talking about that on the show. And I've seen a lot of stuff online, you know, people doing mock-ups of, like, what a Dreamcast Mini would look like and would you buy it. I'm not sure whether Sega would ever do it because I don't know whether it's quite mainstream enough. I don't mm. know, but... They need to go uh, get their heads around doing the Sega Mega Drive Mini first. Yeah, so. yeah. Which is getting great reviews. <laughs> well, though. yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, it looks like they've actually done it right. It, all the reviews I've read have said that's the best Mini console, yeah. Mm. I still haven't got one, but, you know, hopefully going to get one in the next couple of weeks. So it's cool to see these mini systems coming out, and I think it is cool when the more obscure ones that I didn't play first time around get released too. So we'll keep an eye on that. If you want to find out more, I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's chat with Vic, all about Electric Playground, let's talk a bit about Nintendo. They've been up to their old actions again. They've actually gone to court this time. Okay. And you know when, uh, not that I assume any of you lads do this, but say, for example, here in the UK, if you ever want to download a movie off a maybe not so legit website, you make a little message up off your ISP going, this website's blocked in the UK. No, I've heard I, that's a thing, apparently. I use a VPN. What's that, Ravi? <laughs> <laughs> Virtual private network, and you will be your ISP won't be able to see any of this. So even if Nintendo have said, kind of, block these sites, Virgin won't be able to tell anyway. And also, our clone. That's all I'm saying, our clone, guys. <laughs> well, Ravi could get around this, uh, but... <laughs> Nintendo. Never used any of these these uh, add-ons or programs. Yeah. I, I don't know what piracy is, uh, but yeah, I mean at the moment what they've done is we've gone to court. Actually, got an injunction that means um, the five major UK ISPs, Sky, BT, EE, Talk, Talk, and Virgin Media, have got to block or at least impede access to websites that are distributing pirated ROMs and Nintendo Switch games and also firmware mods that kind of thing. But apparently they've also, um, you know, at the same time they've been doing this, not only have they gone and got this kind of ruling from the UK. Um, you know, government essentially, but also the, there's a lawsuit at the moment to take down ROM Universe, which I think is the only remaining website that's still got the old Nintendo ROMs, you know, visible online that you can find easily. Uh, I, I, I'd say the key word there is website because yeah. they are available, but in uh, thy, thy cloud. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. they're talking about here, they want $150,000 per title yeah, per there, ROM that they're hosting. There, there was on this a website. huge case as well where it was a small couple that. Uh, you know, a couple were running a website and Nintendo wanted to do them for, like, millions upon yeah. millions of pounds. Yeah, I, I think Nintendo have always been strong yeah. on their copyright, but, you know, um, you're not going to stop it, I'm afraid. Like, they've tried to stop Pirate Bay and just think of the amount of proxies out there. It's crazy. Well, I think looking at the, the ruling that they've made with the ISPs to block Nintendo Switch mod sites, if you're savvy enough to be able to mod your Nintendo Switch... You'll find a way around that. In like, yeah. like Ravi said, you know, no time yeah. at all. You know. 30 seconds, John. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not going to stop anything. It, I mean, I guess maybe Nintendo, it, it's a token gesture they've got to put out there. Going, yeah, we, we do take it seriously. But what I noticed trying to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Make an example. Yeah. yeah. When I noticed um, this uh, kind of sites all started taking their ROMs down from Nintendo because they were, you know, panicked. Panicked, yeah. yeah but also they all put them in backdoor areas. So, 
everything is secure and available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little message from Ravi. Yeah. Right. I've, no, I've, I've no idea what Ravi's been talking about for the last five minutes. <laughs> Pete ignorance. Yeah. What's that SD card you got in your hand there, Jim? <laughs> I put my switch. The one to I it. took out your switch. Here's <laughs> my, my switch, Ravi. <laughs> right now, this is going to be such an interesting interview this week. Vic Lucas is our special guest. We're going to get the history of the legendary Electric Playground. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, a lot of our audience will be familiar with this week's guest from uh, the very popular YouTube channel, but it does kind of go much beyond YouTube. You know, before YouTube was even thought of, really, we're talking a syndicated television show, a website in the earliest days of the web. Let's get on this week's special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Vic Lucas. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. This is incredible. Uh, it's uh, I've heard good things about the podcast, and I was uh, you know honored to receive the invite, and uh, I, I really appreciate this. This is very cool. It's our pleasure to have you on, Vic. Now, um, before we get into the stories of Electric Playground, um, I was watching a video that you did with um, Johnny Millennium, the, the happy console gamer, um, so now you've got like a really good gaming community in Canada. And that was Love a really interesting... Yeah, he's, he's an amazing guy. We had him on about a month ago, actually. Um, and it was a Christmas special you did, and you were talking about how you first experienced the Atari 2600 around a neighbor's <laughs> house. So, I mean, what kind of got you into video games and what was kind of that story for people that may have missed that video? Well, my mom was always a big supporter of games and she knew that I really liked them. And we used to have those multi-switch machines, Magnavox and Atari made games before the 2600 where there were no cartridges. You would just toggle between different variations of Pong. She bought us some of those. So we had those hooked up. They were black and white. They were terrible. And uh, the arcades started to kind of come to life in the late 70s and early 80s. And, and I, I was a very young kid, but I was uh, able to go to some of these places and play arcade games. And they were mind-blowing. And then our next-door neighbor got an Atari 2600. And I, I, was, uh, I was over there for whatever reason. They had kids over there. I don't know if they were babysitting me or I was babysitting them. But I played the 2600. <laughs> and it was so freaking incredible to my little tiny child mind. It blew me away that... That games that approximated, you know, the stuff that I had seen in an arcade, you could play at home on your TV. And then you just pop in another cartridge and you get a whole new game. It was like, what? <laughs> and uh, so I, I had a paper route back then. It saved up some money. And uh, I convinced my mom to take us down to the States to go and buy. We live right on the border from the U.S. side, the uh, the, Can the Canada and U.S. border. So we went across the border into a town called Bellingham and they have a mall down there. I bought an Atari 2600 because they were a bit cheaper in the States. Um, and then we proceeded to try to smuggle it back into Canada. And um, <laughs> the border patrol in on the Canadian side uh, saw the little Atari 2600 box peeking out from behind my mom's chair. And they said, uh, uh, ma'am, what's that uh, What's that down there? You didn't declare this. And then my mom turned to me and said, I, I don't know, Victor. What is that? <laughs> Your mom dubbed you in. <laughs> she, she threw me under the bus. Uh, but I think she probably thought they'd go easier on a kid or something like that. Um, well, they didn't. <laughs> we had to... We had to bring it. We, we, we didn't get the rubber glove treatment or anything like that, but we had to go to the back room and get chastised and said, you can't do that. You got to pay duty. And and uh, they said, you can have it, but you got to pay the full price, basically, I guess. We ended up having to pay double to get this this darn thing out of there. But we did. And I got it home. And even though it was way more expensive than it should have been, and it was our bad to do that, but uh, I still got my money's worth because I fell in love with the 2600 and 
bought tons of cartridges and that began my uh, my real true obsession with uh, with video games and I, I had everything I had the ColecoVision and the Vectrex and got into the Atari computers and uh, played pretty consistently used to read all those old classic magazines in the 80s antic in the video games magazine and uh, electronic gaming well EGM later but there used to be another I think called electronic gaming or something like that had tons of those magazines and just loved the whole business it was so fascinating well growing up in Canada with the kind of Canadian gaming scene was a lot of that uh gray importing or taking stuff over the border because when we used to get imports we'd have to like join a club or ring a special phone number with a, a guy who'd bought them all over it was, I think, shopping in the U.S. If you're a Canadian, especially back then. I mean, now there's the um, the free trade agreement, and things are a little bit looser. And I've started to see that happen. Like the, sometimes you, you you can bring across a lot more per person than you used to be able to when I was younger. And then the taxes and the duties used to be a lot more expensive back then. Um, but stuff would come out in the states a little sooner for sure. Um, and uh, the prices were generally a little bit better. And it wasn't just for games. It was for everything. But games, I think um, there was a pull to go down there. And honestly, after we had created the Electric Playground, uh, well, there's a couple things. I went down to Los Angeles on a, on a road trip to sell the show. And during that, sh- that trip, which was in 96, uh, I bought an import Japanese N64 with the... Um, uh, with the Super Mario 64 cartridge in Japanese and played that on the way back up to Vancouver uh, and have fond memories of that. But we also, um, uh, there was a huge shortage of launch PlayStation 1s in Canada. Basically what happened is the demand was so massive for the launch of PlayStation that Canada, they basically pulled the stock and said, sorry, Canada, you're not going to get enough stuff. And so we got, uh, the system, because we were already running as a, uh, a media entity by that point, and so Sony Canada or PlayStation Canada sent us the machine and some games, but only one controller. And one of the big launch games for the PlayStation 1 was uh, Battle Arena Toshinden. And I, I just remember us racing again back down to Bellingham to buy controllers and, and a couple of other pieces of software and then trying to get back so that we could cover it and review it. And I think it was just the web back then that we were putting everything on, but, uh, uh, yeah, getting down to the States to, to get games back in the eighties and nineties, that was a big, uh, a big part of the Canadian gaming experience. I think even Johnny millennium from happy console gamer has some stories about getting down to the States, uh, you know, because stuff just came out sooner then. Uh, that's yep. really interesting. So you touched on, uh, before, uh, how the Atari 2600 kind of blew your mind with like arcade at home. Did you go to the arcades much, and what were your favorite games in the arcades? The oh, time? I love the arcades. Yes, I did. Um, I, I loved Space Invaders. You know, that was just just an icon. It was just an epic thing. I remember it wasn't just in arcades. It was in little corner stores and stuff, and it was just incredibly accessible. Um, I played that and then played games like, uh, I think, Galax- Galaxian didn't, yeah, it came out not too much longer, uh, not too much longer than that or after that. I loved games like Defender and Robotron. I still think Eugene Jarvis is uh, one of the entertainment's heroes. And, you know, people just don't understand what a gift that person was to this medium, how innovative he was. Like he invented the idea of a dual stick shooter with Robotron 2084, which I think is completely stands the test of time. It's still my, I, I think if I have to pick one arcade game, I think it's still the best one. It's still incredibly 
inviting and exciting to play today as as exciting as it was in back back in 1980 but pac-man i think was a seminal moment in arcade machines and arcade and the arcade industry and in arcades all over the world in my own personal experience i grew up in a in a, a cool neighborhood here in vancouver bc called kitsilano and kitsilano especially in the 70s and 80s it's become quite affluent now but back then it was um uh, loaded with a lot of greek immigrants who had all bought homes at uh, very inexpensive prices and they're all worth multiple millions of dollars now so a lot of them have done very well for themselves uh but there was a pool hall that was overrun with a lot of uh, old greek guys who wore greek fisherman caps and and had mustaches and smoked cigars and they'd play backgammon or they'd uh, play cards or pool or whatever uh, and then pinball started to come into the uh, to this pool hall and then arcade machines. And it started with black and white games like Space Invaders and Asteroids. Uh, and then Pac-Man came in and it was a, it was a sit down Pac-Man system. And I remember the these old Greek dudes would never play the game, but they noticed that lots of people were playing it. And I remember one time I came in, sat down, played it. It had blown my mind. It was like playing a cartoon back then. It was like, holy crap, look at all the character in this video game. This is like watching cartoons on Saturday. And I loved the game. It was great. And I started to get okay at it. And I, you know, I'm not a, I, I, I play a little bit of everything. So I'm a master of none. Uh, but I started to be okay at Pac-Man. And I remember getting past a couple of levels and and uh, I look up and there's a bunch of these old Greek guys standing around watching me play this game. And then I'd get past another couple of levels, more old Greek dudes. <laughs> and and it just I was like completely surrounded by all these guys. And then finally, on my last guy, as I'm playing my game and I'm doing all right, there was like a chorus of oh, from all these old guys when I died. And that was a really big part of the arcade experience as well. I mean, you know, I remember doing that, playing like, you know, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2, and you'd have like an army of kids around you just watching you play. And really, yes. you're, you're kind of putting on a show for them, really, in a way, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You had to wait, right? You'd put your quarter up on the system and you'd have to wait. And, and uh, part of you, uh, I think back then, was uh, you'd be rooting for the person playing to see how far they could get because everybody knew that these games were mercilessly difficult. Um, but you're also hoping that they would die soon so you could play. So you're, 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 you're kind of wanting to be entertained, but also like, okay, when's it going to be my turn? You know, um, and, and arcades, I, I hope they never go away. And what's really exhilarating for me, and I, I'm sure you guys cover this all the time is that this, there is this, um, cultural awareness now of the, uh, validity of, um, these classic gaming experiences. And I think there's more and more barcades kind of opening up and people kind of, diving into um, the connection to retro gaming, whether it's on an arcade system or a, a home system and the pure joy that's a part of the imagination that these developers had to have back then. They didn't have horsepower. They didn't have state-of-the-art technology. I mean, they did back then. Uh, but what they had in spades was imagination and and basically reinventing the rules every time they went out to build a game and, and uh, it's great that we in 2019 are still celebrating that. And, and, and frankly, there's podcasts like yours. Well, I guess there wasn't much uh, gaming TV around then because uh, in the UK, we kind of had it in the 90s. That's when it all kicked off. But in the early days, you know, uh, we had a few stuffy shows with guys in shirts. What was the <laughs> scene like in Canada? 
We had a terrible show. It was called uh, Video and Arcade Top 10. And, and uh, some, some people grew up with that show and they liked it. But I, I found it, uh, you know, I, I was in my 20s by that point. I was kind of trying to figure out. I, I mean, I loved games. I was playing them all the time, spending hundreds of dollars every month on video games. And I was also a point, at a point in my life where I was trying to determine what I was going to do with my life. And I saw my obsession and my fascination with games, which had never waned. Um, and I, I had an understanding of, of um, you know, production and the, the opportunities to create things um, using video cameras and what, whatever. Uh, and I'd watch a show like Video and Arcade Top 10, and I just was completely insulted by it because it was so much a packaged piece of propaganda for Nintendo. It just it was an infomercial using kids to compete against each other, and then they'd, you know, they'd give them prizes. And, you know, I think there was some enjoyment in, in watching these kids compete and stuff. It was almost like a little bit of a game show, but it was just so overtly um, a, a marketing play, and it had nothing to do with the the medium itself it had nothing to do with the value of the medium it was just to sell these games and i grew up in an era when uh and i don't know if you guys got this show but there was there still is a show called entertainment tonight and when i was growing up it was an incredible show because it was it was a a, you know a, a nightly program that let you in behind the scenes on hollywood and there was always these set visits and interviews with directors and um, stars and and writers and people making things and it was a fascinating d- dive into a world that I was also obsessed with. I loved movies and I you know Star War. I grew up with Star Wars and Superman and the Batman movies and Indiana Jones and all of that stuff just resonated so much with me. And I thought there has to be something equivalent uh, in the gaming space. There has to be a show that doesn't just talk about the products, but goes behind the scenes to see how this stuff comes together and interviews the people. And, uh, and that's what I created, but it, it, it really came out of the, the, the lack of that and the awareness that people were interested in this in a, in a deeper way than just, you know, wanting to escape for a couple of minutes by plugging a quarter into a machine. They wanted to kind of know a little bit more about it. I, I, I felt that personally. And I felt like if I had this obsession and was collecting these magazines and wanted to know who these people were, that there were probably other people out there that would appreciate programming like this as well. And so that's that's what I created with Electric Playground. Because of Electric Playground started online, didn't it, in 1995? Yeah. How did that kind of come about? Because obviously... You've just mentioned there, you know, the kind of idea sparked from essentially I can do a better job from that, what I love. So it kind of started as the website. And then how did it kind of go from there? Well, you know, and I say this to anybody that's ever trying to build anything now anyways. I I think this is, you know, it's a piece of wisdom that I kind of stumbled on. But I think it was it's incredibly it's an incredibly important part of my origin story as somebody that's built something. Um, I didn't just say this is what I want to do. Let's do it. I said to myself early, because I was an actor before this, and I was getting work, and I was going to auditions, and and it was, it, you know, it was it was becoming somewhat rewarding, but also uh, I was becoming acutely aware that I was really putting my future in somebody else's hands to to discover me and to give me a break. And I thought this is this is no way to live, man. <laughs> like I've got to try to define what I'm going to do, or I'm going to be constantly waiting for somebody to say I'm good. And I, I, I said, that's going to drive me crazy. And so what I did is I wrote down a hundred different ideas of things that I could put my energy into and electric playground, the television show was one of those. 
And I, I basically filtered out a bunch of different concepts. Some of them I think could have been very easily turned into cool businesses, but it, it came down to this made the most sense. And then what I did is I put a three page sort of pitch document together, something very clean and simple and very illustrative uh, or illustrative of uh, what this concept was so that I could put it in front of anybody. I had to also present it with some numbers to back it up and some reasons why. And along the way, we discovered that the, uh, the web was becoming a really important partnership to uh, programming like this. We always envisioned that our website would be an extension of our video content, our TV content. And, uh, and so right from the get-go, because we were coming up a, a, in an era where the web was becoming a media play. And uh, I, I was a subscriber to Wired Magazine for a long time and used to read articles every month about the death of television and the rise of internet video. And it was very, you know, it was very believable and it was very prescient. And, and eventually a lot of that stuff has started to happen, but it took a long time. But I, I was clued into the fact that we couldn't exist as a show that had uh, its fingers in technology without also having a, you know, kind of state-of-the-art web presence at the same time. Uh, and so we launched in the spring of 1995, and we were live for the very first E3. And I, I spent money before we had a TV show to go and uh, met George Lucas at the first E3, uh, gave him my business card, which also has Lucas on the, you know, as my last name and <laughs> was bouncing around him. I was so excited. Uh, Michael Jackson was at that PlayStation launch party and I went to the all the press conferences and saw the the Saturn was released that the next day they had the big Sega press conference and they said, yep, Sega Saturn be available in stores tomorrow. That must've been and so it, exciting to witness all that stuff. It was incredible. Yeah. Trip Hawkins talking about the 3DO. We interviewed the, uh, the Tremel brothers about, um, uh, Atari, um, the Jaguar, VR the Jag and the yeah, yeah. Jaguar VR. <laughs> and, uh, I talked to Peter Molyneux about the, you know, the future of gaming and Jesus, we met, um, Jeff, uh, Minter talking about, uh, Tempest and and um, you know what he was doing with with Atari and and his viewpoints on the video game industry, and and I, honestly I have to shout out to uh, David Perry who had become already you know we were only four or five months into this dream of building Electric Playground, but I had sent him a, uh, a fax. This is how long ago. <laughs> I sent him a fax, uh, sort of explaining that I was building this concept for the show. And he, he sent me a fax back, you know, uh, saying that I believe in this. This is great. And, and he was he was always he actually wrote an article. I think it was a next gen, uh, which was a the U U.S. equivalent of Edge magazine. I think it was in the second issue of next gen saying, why is there no good television programming about video games? You can watch people play golf for 24 hours a day in this country, but you can't watch people talking about video games. And I sent him a, my letter saying that's exactly what I think, and I'm I'm building that concept, and I can't wait to uh, to meet you and have you on the show, and uh, and he replied and and said you know we fully extend a, a welcome arms and we open our doors to uh, to Electric Playground whenever they want to visit Shiny Entertainment and. I interviewed him also at the first E3, and he was a wonderful guy, just a great champion. And that letter ended up becoming part of our pitch document for the show. Um, met Tommy Tallarico at the, the first E3. Didn't know how to say his name because I'd only read his name in the magazines. And, and there, there's video of me just checking with him to make sure I'm saying his last name correctly. And he was funny and great, and we had a rapport instantly. 
somehow along the way we met Jeff Keeley. I think we might have met him at the at the very first E3. He was already a, a writer for different uh, magazines across uh, nor- uh, across the world. And then, yeah, we used 95 and 96 to kind of put demos and, and things together. And then at E3 96 is when I finally uh, realized that we needed a host that people knew from the video game space to, to come aboard and, and to kind of lead the show. And that's when I asked Tommy uh, Tellerico to come on and be the host. And it was at his, uh, he, had a, he had a house party actually after E3 in 1996 in Los Angeles where, where he lives. And um, we went to the party and it, it kind of hit me that this is the guy I should ask to host the show. And his dad was at the party and I said, you know, I asked his dad if he thought it was a good idea. So I basically asked his dad for his hand in marriage uh, to, to, to be, a, you know, to be a host on our show. And his dad said, yeah, that'd be great. The TV show started then in 1997. And if people want to watch the early episodes, I know they're all on your YouTube channel, you can go back yeah. and watch the first ever episode. Kind of, you know, for people that may not have watched the show when it was on TV, kind of, mm-hmm. what kind of stuff were you covering in there then for those that may not have seen it? And what was kind of the outline of like a typical show? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, we had never produced a, a show, right? I had an idea for a show, but it's another thing to then activate, you know, and then have a t- an army basically of uh, different ideas and different people move forward in a singular direction to try to complete something. And it was bumpy, but that's okay because we were still learning. But uh, one of the things that I, I think um, was incredibly valuable um, was f- mostly for my edification and my comfort was uh, I put together, a, a, you know, a, a script of what 13 episodes of a, ele- which was our first season episode count, what 13 episodes of a show would look like Um writing down every question and every answer by trying to put myself in the heads of every single interaction that would appear in a half hour show. EP's unscripted, but I needed to see in my own mind how a show would flow. And once I did that and I handed out the, the, the basically a Bible, a guideline for what the show could look like to uh, the director at the time, Scott Barrett, who's gone off to do, have a nice career doing a whole bunch of commercials and things. Basically, what we did is we, because everybody was new to this, every single person, there were a couple of people, like a, we had a production manager that had come off of other shows here in the Vancouver area who had experience, but almost every other person on the team was kind of green to building a show in an ongoing basis like this. And that was kind of wonderful because we learned it. And we also learned it with an industry that didn't have anything like this before. You know, there was no regular, uh, you know, television visit. There might be like a news hit or something like that from from uh, a different city or something. They might come out and say, okay, this is KTSB doing a report here from LucasArts or whatever. But here we were a bunch of um, young people you know, trying to build something that was entertaining, but also deliver some insider information and have fun with these developers who were also all young people sort of defining their own careers and, and their own creativity in this industry, this, this burgeoning industry. It, it was a great sort of meeting point, but all of it kind of crystallized. And, and um, I think if people go back and look at that content from the 90s, I think they'll be still impressed because, you know, one of the things that I think we really did was we got out in the field we didn't just stay in a studio and and uh 
and pontificate or or talk down to the audience or come from a place of like we're the experts and we're telling you how you should feel it was never about that it was we're we're people and we're gonna go talk with people well one thing i was gonna say was um your reviews were really good and the main thing about reviews was kind of having two people did you um want to have that like objective opinion of two different people and also did you ever get offered to kind of uh you know, do reviews for a bit of extra cash or pre- pre-releases of the games, you know? I get that question a lot. Um, well, I, I got to confess, and I don't know if, you know, Siskel and Ebert are a, a big um, part of uh, the UK's, uh, you know, critical history. But in North America, they were um, two film reviewers. They're both, they've both passed, but they were so influential and they were both so fantastic on camera. And they were a big inspiration for me. I knew I wanted a review component in the show with two people. I didn't know it was going to be reviews on the run until we passed a uh, drive-in theater when we were shooting back in 1996, shooting demo stuff early. I think we were down there to visit IDOS to talk about uh, the the first Tomb Raider. And we passed a drive-in theater um, that was still around. It's probably long gone in the Bay Area. And I, I turned to Tommy and to Scott, who was driving. I said, we should go and see if we can go shoot in that theater. And we, we can project the games on the on the screen in the background. We can kind of put put that in post. And it, why don't we call the, our reviews, reviews on the run? And it just, it worked. You know, it just made sense. It just it, it clicked. But the thing that I knew was going to be crucial uh, was to have some objective opinions and have that discussion. And what I learned from watching Siskel and Ebert over the years was when they went off script, but, you know, they each had a time to kind of give their opinion about something. But the most fun moments in the show, which was scripted, but when the most fun that was in their show was when they went off script and they argued about things, you know, when they disagreed on stuff. And I knew if we could kind of get a little bit of that with our reviews, people were going to like that quite a bit. And in that discussion, and in also getting to know, at, at first it was Tommy Tellerico and myself, getting to know our tastes and our personalities, they would be able to help define the viewers where their tastes and their personalities kind of align. And and they would, you know, either pick a score that was kind of in the middle of what we had to say, or they would lean more towards what Tommy was saying or more towards what I was saying. And right from the get-go, it became a, a very popular part of the show. And it increased in Electric Playground as seasons went on. And then eventually in uh, 2002, we split off and launched it as its own separate half hour. In the U.S., it was called Judgment Day on the G4 network. And in, in Canada, it was called uh, Reviews on the Run. But yeah, reviews were an incredibly par- uh, important part of what we did. And no, nobody ever paid us anything to talk about uh, a game in any particular way ever. And in fact, we had sponsorship with almost every big major video game company in the industry. And I would put in all of the contracts that the reviews were 100% uh, our opinions and they are not to be a part of any kind of financial consideration with any of this stuff. And ev- you know, everybody signed that, everybody got it. I did have a... Uh, uh, a company drop out of sponsoring us one year because we didn't like a game, but then they came back the, the season afterward and apologized that uh, that they weren't a part of it, and they said they should never have done that. Um, for me, the kind of like the N64 and PS1 and Saturn era is kind of like my favorite kind of era of gaming. Was that yeah. exciting for you guys to kind of start in that era? Was it an exciting time for gaming? 
Oh, it was it was incredible, man. Uh, I was already in during the 16-bit era and the 8-bit era. I loved all of that stuff. But I knew, especially during the pitch process for Electric Playground, when I would show people, because all that stuff was coming out in Japan first, right? And so the early screens in magazines and things like that um, just showed another era. It was upon us. We were about to transform from two-dimensional scrolling entertainment, which is still valid and still wonderful, to 3D, uh, you know, Z-space, transformative entertainment where it was going to feel like we were playing Pixar animated movies. And there were going to be, you know, story sequences and things like that that were going to translate so wonderfully to television. And um, it was all true, you know? I mean, it was it, it, it was crude, especially by today's standards, but it was so, like, I don't think we've had a, a, a next step up in technology in the gaming space since then. You know, when we moved from 8-bit to, or from when we moved from 16-bit to PlayStation and Nintendo 64 and Saturn, it was mind-blowing. It was completely transformative. And and it became incredibly difficult for developers to uh, make that transition smoothly. And, and some developers struggled more than others. Um, I think Nintendo came out incredibly strong with Super Mario 64, kind of showing people how you would control a character properly in 3D space. I remember having really big uh, problems with the, the tank style controls of Lara Croft and Tomb Raider based on my appreciation for what Nintendo had done with analog controls with the um, Super Mario 64 development. But it was so easy to talk about that stuff and and say to people as we're making our shows, look at this, look at that, it's incredible. And it truly, truly was incredible. It was every, every week we were getting software coming into the studio to review and look at that just was, that took our breath away, you know? And, and so much of it there, like it was developers experimenting and defining and it's like they got a whole new playground, you know? Like I, I feel like, well, there's a couple things. Like PlayStation had a real drive to kind of stamp out the uh, the old traditional 2D game design as they launched, right? They really wanted developers to uh, embrace the polygonal kind of uh, art construction and, and uh, they wanted dev- gamers to play in 3D space. And so developers with a lot of experience in 2D had to fight kind of tooth and nail to be able to get a game like Castlevania Symphony of the Night onto the PlayStation 1. Um, because Sony was already moving forward. And sometimes I feel like that's it's a bit of a crying shame because there were expert 2D makers in the late, uh, or in sort of the 1993 to 1996 kind of time frame that maybe didn't make the jump so elegantly to uh, this new 3D you know wilderness that was being provided on all of this new hardware. And now we have this, great wealth of very cool modern 2D games that are influenced by a lot of these incredible 16-bit games. And I just, my mind boggles with the idea that if the industry had been sensible enough to, you know, really partner with 2D game developers and let them still have, you know, a a great sort of mainstream space on the PlayStation and the N64 and all all of those systems and, you know, carrying on from those systems, imagine the 2D games that developers from that era would be making now. Imagine if Sonic Team was able to just keep continue making 
two-dimensional Sonic, maybe with some 3D pop. Anyways, they didn't. But what was being made was also still revolutionary and incredibly exciting to talk about. Well, that's your playground. I mean, it was syndicated all over. I mean, you were even shown in Australia on TV. Yeah. How, how did yeah. that work then? Uh, actually, that was a that was an awesome thing. We were um, syndicated across Canada, and and uh, one of the programmers from the Australian Sci-Fi Channel had come up and had a vacation in Vancouver. And every night they were watching Electric Playground <laughs> reviews on the run on our city TV station here in Vancouver. And uh, they loved the show. And, and so they reached out to Rogers, who was our partner here in Canada, and said, how do we license the show for Australia? And uh, Rogers only had the rights to the Canadian version of the show. And so they passed them on to us. And then we did a deal with them. And, and they picked it up down there. And uh, uh, it ran for a couple seasons, but then sci-fi changed because they just recently went to the SYFY. And I don't know if they're still there. I mean, TV got weird in the, you know, basically from around 2012 on, TV got very tenuous and strange. And and that's when a lot of the tech websites and YouTube and, and um, you know, this instant video kind of opportunity started to happen around information like this. And I think a lot of television programming and programmers um, started to get really skittish about investing in, in content like this that historically had been more expensive to produce than what people could make on on uh, you know prosumer cameras for the for the web and wasn't being produced maybe with the uh, efficiency and the speed that stuff on the web uh, could be or the cost and. Uh, so we had some major changes in there. But yeah, we had a nice run in Australia. And, and I think we still have a lot of um, viewers of our content and fans of, uh, of EP down there. Uh, and also Rogers was able to do some international deals with our content as well because they had uh, different carriers. I, I remember being, I don't even know, I think I was in uh, Lisbon or something like that on a vacation and, and some guy from, I, I believe Israel came up and said, yeah, I watch your show every day in, in, uh, in Israel. And I was like, how, how are we airing there? <laughs> you know, and, I, and I think we were airing in the Philippines. I had a deal with uh, an Italian broadcaster for a little while as well. But uh, they didn't pay, so we, we didn't last for too long with them. Well, kind of digital TV started coming out, and uh, G4 was a network that I remember you guys going on to. Also, Leo Laporte, uh, quite a lot of people that actually are quite prominent on the internet now with shows and stuff. That really kind of opened up the world as well, because that was the first time that we saw these kind of tech shows online. Um, yeah. What was it like going in that kind of really early video distribution period uh, uh, on a digital um, channel. Well, that was amazing. Um, there's actually, it's it's a crazy story because, um, well, in 2001, we were on Discovery's Science Channel. This is the, this is the thing about our, our little program that could is that we, we, uh, we went through a lot of transformations and lots of different partnerships along the way, and things were always changing. But in 2001, we did a deal uh, with Discovery took a year for the deal to come together, but we started airing on Discovery in 2001. And uh, there was a two season deal. So we had uh, season seven and season eight with Discovery. And they were a fantastic partner and we had a great relationship. And I actually went out to, um, to the Washington DC area where Discovery was in August of 2001 and uh, negotiated for us to launch Reviews on the Run and another show called Entertainment Tomorrow, which Paramount who owns Entertainment Tonight wasn't too happy about learning about, but uh, 
uh, it was going to be a show which EP Daily, which is our daily configuration of Electric Playground, eventually evolved into talking about all kinds of you know movies and technology and all the fun stuff that that gamers are are into. And so I had a three show kind of commitment, verbal commitment from uh, Discovery Science. And then in September of 2001, the uh, the planes hit, you know, in New York, and they also hit in the Washington D.C. area. And uh, the head of the network, as many people did in the in the city, they they quit. They left. They wanted to refocus uh, on family, and they moved out of the uh, uh, what felt like, and I'm sure still feels like, some days a very dangerous part of the world, um, a target kind of city. Uh, sorry to get so heavy, but. Um, they moved and then quickly everything started to change there because he left uh, and there were staffing changes and there were also philosophy changes. You know, we had a lot of games that had explosions and violence in them and, and stuff had to be kind of tapered and tailored uh, for our fall season based on um, everybody's obvious and, and uh, completely understandable um, horror uh, about what had just occurred. So consequently, my relationship with the network changed quite a bit um, because of this external thing that had happened. And it's amazing how um, world events can shape companies of every shape and size. So we didn't get to continue with Discovery Science. But during our sort of like, what the hell are we going to do now phase, uh, Charles Hirshhorn, who launched G4, had been working with Disney uh, on a bunch of TV movies and stuff, and they shoot everything in Vancouver. So he'd been up to Vancouver and he'd visit our studio. He basically said to me, he kind of, he kind of apologized to me. He said, look, I, I love your show. I love Electric Playground. And, and we're actually going to turn your the concept that you have for your show into like a full 24-hour network. And I hope you don't mind. And I said, of course, I, I'm not going to make a 24-hour network. Let's just figure out a way to work together. This sounds amazing. And uh, and so we did. And we became the first external partner that, that this uh, network out of the U.S that was going to be 24 seven video games worked with. Uh, and then we ended up being the longest running external partner that they had. They never acquired us. You know, we, we remained independent, but we, uh, we made judgment day for them. It was one of the highest rated shows on the network. People really liked the, the bickering that Tommy and I got into. Uh, and then the following year, I think in 2003, after we'd done a year of judgment day, they picked up electric playground. Uh, and then eventually Rogers said, look, we, we, um, we don't want to go forward with more uh, lab with Leo Laporte, but how about we uh, we go back to this idea that you have for turning Electric Playground into a daily show? And so in 2008, we turned EP into a daily show. And so we started to cover all the stuff that gamers love, you know, comics and, and movies and TV shows and funky technology. And uh, it worked and people really liked it. But at the same time, Advertising was really shifting towards the internet. And so we had commitments to deliver all of this content to TV with some, you know, stipulations about how we could deliver this stuff to the internet. So we couldn't really just do YouTube like crazy back then. And I, I you know, I wish that we had negotiated to be able to do that. Um, and so that, that was what was being pushed back at me. I, I pitched a whole bunch of different ways for us to kind of change. I had this, this fantastic idea of working I probably shouldn't get too deep, you know, but I, I, I tried everything I could to kind of keep the boat afloat and also to grow and to expand. And then in 2015, it was, uh, you know, the, the money just wasn't there to after 2015, the money wasn't there for us to keep going at the at the pace and at the uh, episode count that we've been able to do. So um, we shifted, we shifted to the Internet and uh, it's been very small team, but um, 
uh, I figured the best thing for me to do, because I, you know, at the end of 2015, we'd done 25 seasons of Electric Playground, and, and I could have easily said, okay, that's it. I'm going to hang it up. But I, uh, I, I really love this platform that I have, you know, and I got invited to an event. Ubisoft invited me to the first division event in Los Angeles, and I went alone because I, I didn't have the budget to bring camera operator with me. And I just shot stuff on my iPhone and I, I uh, cut it together in iMovie and I posted it on our YouTube channel and, and uh, it was a good interview and people picked it up and people were talking about it and, and um, I had some video sites saying, oh, Electric Playground, who are those guys again? I remember, you know, it's YouTube smarm. And, uh, but it got some views and I went, well, geez, you know what, maybe uh, we could just keep doing this. And so we kind of started our, our YouTube era and uh, uh, delivered a lot of pre-cut content, which is very similar to our TV content in, in sort of chunky form, episodic or um, segmented form. We called it season 26. And then in 2017, after I was still kind of wrapping back and forth with a couple of potential broadcast partners, I just said in 2017, you know what? I could be waiting forever for someone to do a deal with me, or we could just keep making this content and dive into this for real. And so we started EP Live out of our studio space uh i'll have fantastic guests on and and uh we'll cut to pre-cut segments like like we had made for tv and we just keep rolling that's a uh, pretty amazing i mean that's a pretty extensive um career as well spanning <laughs> you know over 1600 episodes i believe uh, and nearly 25 years uh, but with that in mind um has there been any kind of hiccups or mess ups along the way Oh yeah, every step of the way. Yeah, I mean, for especially in the early days, you guys have to remember, like the internet was like, even though we had stuff online, we had video online in, in 1995. It, they were like postage stamp size, and people had to get them on, um, it, you know, 28.8 modems and 56k modems or whatever, and it took forever for people to download that stuff. And so there weren't a lot of options to make video content like we were doing other than television and uh, TV operates on a, on a seasonal kind of model. And, and they, they operate on, well, were the ratings okay? Did, did our, our network or our, our TV stations make enough money running this content? Can we do another season with these guys? You know, when we started 2002, the only deal we had was six episodes. The only money coming in was six episodes uh, of judgment day. And I had a team that we needed to pay to make these shows um, and we didn't know how long it was gonna last, but we were able to keep it rocking and rocking and rocking. And that's why it was really hard because we got to a point where there was a little bit of stability with with all of the, the daily programming that we were doing. We had about 40 people and we had different, different teams in different cities and making so much content and making it, doing it well, you know, and the team was really tight and um, there was a lot of um, agency for every individual that was contributing. Everybody felt like they were, they were really building something quite wonderful. And the, and the, the idea was to, to, you know, keep coming up with new concepts and growing out and taking what we learned and, and build and build and build. But, you know, the media industry has become so, tenuous and weird and it, it's not just for video game people it's for everybody in all forms of media um and i'm totally aware of that uh so we had an incredibly long run and i'm so proud that and so happy that we had such a long run i don't know if we get something like that again but what i do know intrinsically because i've seen it happen is if you keep making things people pay attention and if it's good it leads to new opportunities. And um, 
that's been the case already with with our web content. And, you know, the door's always open for uh, conversations and you never know. Somebody might hear this and may want to get in touch with me about, uh, I don't know, turning a key and having thousands of hours of cool content. (laughs) That's how it goes, yeah. (laughs) You know, you never know. Well, it's incredible now that, you know, anyone in the world can watch MEP, you know, with your YouTube episodes that you do and even watching the history of it on there is amazing too. Just one last question, Vic. I mean, kind of going back to those, you know, early days when you were in the arcade playing Pac-Man and then you look at the industry today, did you ever expect the video games industry to go the way it has, you know, become the biggest entertainment media in the world? Yeah, I did. I, I, uh, yeah, it was no surprise to me that people were going to get it. Um, What has become a surprise to me, though, is how um, divisive the video game business has become and how um, the games industry in its maturation process, which is completely understandable, has found so many different ways to raise revenue and to gain profit that has really uh, created a lot of ire and a lot of um, anger in some of the core players that were there at the beginning. And I see it a lot. I'm sure you guys do too. I think that this move to retro is kind of a, uh, it's a, it, it's a direct movement away from a lot of the practices of, of uh, modern game making. Um, there's an understandable element there that game companies, their businesses, and they need to bring as much money as they can for their shareholders and for their stakeholders, their employees, all of that stuff. Um, and, and that money earned is invested back in new content. And, uh, there's more ways for people to play now than there ever has been. But the one thing that we were able to do, and I don't know if it was just a, a, you know, a sign of the times or the perfect moment or whatever, but through our content on television, we were able to bring families together to watch content around video games and get to learn the names of some of these people that build this stuff. And uh, I don't see that happening now. I see little camps of people. It's almost like we reverted back to um, the fanzine era where there's these little groups and there's specific communities based around specific games or specific uh, genres or eras of experiencing within the, the gaming space. And the one thing that concerns me about that is that we are now making um, stars out of people that play or people that talk about games but we're kind of forgetting to connect with the people that make these games. Uh, I'm talking from the media space and we're not getting to know who these people, like it really bothers me that more people know who Ninja is than who Tim Sweeney is. I don't think that should be true. And that's not to disparage Ninja. I think that part of uh, people becoming more aware of, of games and as, a, as an outlet and as something to enjoy is is valuable for sure but i also selfishly want more people to become inspired to make games um so that they're entertaining the future of the gaming consumer but they're also making games that are more interesting i'll tell you this i i adore this industry i love the people i'm constantly entertained i'm never bored and it's always changing, you know. I've been doing this for 25 years and uh, I wake up every day excited as hell that I, I get another 
day to experience this crazy business. Well, Vic, it's been incredible that you have been there to cover it for 25 years and hopefully another 25 as well. Um, <laughs> keep up the good work with EP. And of course, um, we'll put all the links in our show notes so people want to check it out online too. Thank you so much for coming on this week and sharing your stories. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, you guys are wonderful. I, I'm sorry if I'm so long-winded. Uh, put a microphone in front of me and I don't shut up. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh,